Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. If you want to remain comfortable, do not let Jesus ask you questions. I learned this the hard way a few years ago when I decided that as a Lenten practice, I would spend time each day reflecting on and praying with the questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. If you have ever looked for these questions, you come to discover that Jesus asks a lot of questions. What are you looking for? Why do you call me good? How does your concern affect me? Does this shock you? Do you want to be well? Have you anything here to eat? And so on and so on. What I found is that the more I dwelt with Jesus's questions, the more I discovered that I was being moved by Jesus away from my own comfort zones. Those are the zones of my own thoughts, of my own vague desires, of my own expectations. Of course, when I went in search of these questions, I didn't just read the questions. I read the passages in the Gospels where they are set. I found myself connecting those episodes and those questions to other parts of Scripture. And then I just started writing. And I kept writing and writing. It turns out that I had stumbled into a scriptural pilgrimage. I don't know how else to put this but to say that Jesus led me by his questions through a prolonged examination of conscience towards his suffering and even to glimpse anew the glory of his resurrection. Reflecting on and praying with the questions of Jesus turned out to be a very appropriate, very challenging, and very renewing Lenten practice. So I thought I would share a bit of that with you today. Our episode, it's pretty straightforward. I'm going to select a few of these questions of Jesus. I'll, of course, tell you what the question is. I'll read the gospel passage in which it is set, and then I will share with you my reflection on that question. Maybe this will spark an interest in you to take the chance of letting Jesus ask you his questions. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame in collaboration with Spoke Street Media Network. The reflections you will hear today are taken from my book, A God Who Questions, and I'm grateful to our Sunday visitor for allowing me to share them with you in this way. You can also find a Lenten guide to prayer and scripture reading that goes along with this book at mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources, mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. The guide is called A Scriptural Pilgrimage to Christ Through Lent. So let's turn now to the questions of Jesus. The first question What do you seek? Our passage comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. It reads like this. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. Here's our reflection. 
This question is the first thing Jesus says in the Gospel of John. This is the same Gospel, you'll remember, that begins by introducing the Word who was with God, who was God. This is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. After that verse, the Word is not mentioned again. This Word made flesh is named Jesus, and he now speaks human words. His words carry the force of the Word of God, and the very first words from his lips in this gospel form not a declaration, not a commandment, but a question, asking these two disciples of John the Baptist what they are looking for. This is the question that Jesus asks every would-be disciple, and really, it is a question that never fades away. What do we really want to find? What do our hearts desire? What would we be willing to accept? The humility of the Word of God is on full display here. He is the reason and the order for the whole of creation. Yet, He deigns to ask those initially drawn to Him what they seek. These two disciples of John respond to Jesus' question by divulging how they view Jesus. They call him rabbi. So what are they looking for from this teacher? Are they seeking instruction, enlightenment, wisdom? In him, they will find all this, but is a teacher all they want? They ask him a question about where he is staying so they can find him later to obtain what they seek, which brings Jesus' initial question even more clearly into view. What do they seek? Jesus' response to the disciples' question is not a response in kind. They ask for information from this rabbi, but he gives them none. They want an address, but he yields no location. They want to picture where he will be, but he offers no such image. Instead, Jesus says, Come and see. He will answer their question about where he is staying, but not on their terms. They have to move toward him if they want to really see where he is at home. There is nothing distant or impersonal about that. Regardless of what they think they want to find, what they think they are seeking, the only response he will give is to invite them to draw near. What they will see is more than what they want. Even the question the disciples asked Jesus is about far more than they realize. To see where Jesus is at home, to know where he dwells, That would mean knowing him for who he is. Who is he? Well, John the Evangelist told us in the prologue to his gospel. Where does he come from? He comes from on high. Where does he dwell? He dwells not in one place or another, but in his Father's love, even as he makes his dwelling among us. Is this a riddle? No. It is his identity, and his mission. When Pontius Pilate later asks 
Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gives no answer. To ask where Jesus is from, where he is at home, where he dwells, is really to ask who he is. Does Pilate want to know? Because that would mean accepting Jesus for who he is. What kind of person would be prepared to receive that answer? Well, it all depends on what you seek and what you are willing to find. The answer to the home and the identity of Jesus is not something you can grasp intellectually, objectively, or from a safe distance. You cannot know him unless you follow him and draw near to him. And you cannot imagine him without knowing him. He asked these two disciples what they were seeking because, in the end, he means to teach these men to seek him. The first disciples of Jesus, they came in waves. From these first two, who were probably Andrew and John the Evangelist, Simon is beckoned. Then Jesus calls Philip, and Philip summons Nathaniel, otherwise known as Bartholomew. Those whom Jesus tells to come near, Andrew, John, Philip, do not merely tell others about what happened to them. Rather, they invite those others, Simon, Nathaniel, to draw near as they have. When Nathaniel questioned Philip about this man who comes from Nazareth, Philip does not answer the question in terms of that backwater place. Instead, Philip tells Nathaniel what Philip himself has begun to understand from following Jesus. You have to come and see. There is no standalone message or lesson to learn. There is only him. The disciples learn to follow and trust him. What exactly do those who, quote, come and see begin to see? And what happens to them when they see? That, of course, is the drama of the gospel. All the way through its last page. But there are already promissory notes here at the start, beginning with the first sign Jesus performs at the wedding at Cana. Along with Mary, Jesus' disciples are there with him. They have come, and now they will see. What they see is a work that begins to reveal Jesus' identity through his actions. In this work, this sign, they glimpse his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John 2.11 They believed in him. This all begins with Jesus catching the attention of those first two disciples— and then asking them the question that never really goes away. What do you seek? If even the whiff of curiosity has turned your or my eye to this person of Jesus, we might imagine him confronting us with the same question. That question remains, even if you and I passionately and zealously chase after him, even if we rest with him, What we seek matters. 
Do we remain willing to seek Him? That's the first question I want to explore and think about together today. What do you seek? The passage I read was the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. To aid us on our Lenten pilgrimage toward the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I'm focusing today on some of the question Jesus himself asks in the Gospels. The reflections on those questions are taken from my own book, A God Who Questions, published by our Sunday Visitor. Let's turn then to a second question that Jesus asks among the many, many questions he asks throughout the Gospels. This one, I think, is especially appropriate for Lenten reflection and Lenten practices. The question is, who do the crowds say that I am? I'll read us the passage from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 to 20. Once, when Jesus was praying in solitude and the disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They said in reply, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the ancient prophets has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter said in reply, The Messiah of God. Here's our reflection. Perhaps there is no greater threat to our own security than the gods we create out of our own expectations. These gods constantly swirl in our hearts and masquerade in our imaginations. There is the God of my own convenience, the God of my own condition, the God of my hidden agenda, the God of my private religious worldview. These gods get broadcast far and wide by the crowds who present a divine image that serves some end that they or we or I seek for their or our or my own purposes. The gods the crowds proclaim are always different faces of the God of my own choosing, however that God may look from one person to the next or in one age to the next. We worship the God we expect, who fulfills the end we covet. That end may be prosperity, it may be favor, or collective self-improvement projects in which we become, quote, the best version of ourselves, or the assumed justification of a particular set of prejudices. The great threat to our security is presuming to know God according to our own expectations of him, instead of learning how to receive God as he is. We become slaves to our own smallish expectations, trapped by the self-generated images we create. We love nothing more than the power to make our own gods. Jesus asks a question about the crowds and hears what he surely already knows. The crowds seek to put him in his place. To them, he is at best a prophet of God 
as they expect God to be. They have imagined a God, and this man fits in that view. The crowds may even be willing to listen to Jesus all the way to the boundaries of their own expectations. But if he were to step out of place and break from their expectations, they would surely reject him in the name of the God whom they expect. What the crowds expect, they worship. Journeys of penance, such as the ones we undergo on a pilgrimage, including during the season of Lent, are in part about being cured of our idolatrous views of God. We are to be loosened from the God of our own expectations so as to receive the God who says, I am. Jesus reveals the God who creates us and redeems us and invites our worship for our own good. He reveals God, not just by what he says or by what he does, but also by who he is. Receiving Jesus rightly is how we receive who God is. We may want to say this and that about who Jesus is so we can put him into context, but we only receive him as he truly is when we allow him to provide his own context. His prayer is his context, because that is where he is at home in his Father's love, not merely as a prophet, but as the Son. It is a curious thing that at the beginning of this passage, Jesus is, quote, praying alone, and the disciples are, quote, with him. The other voices are not there. The crowds have been left behind. The disciples are gathered into Jesus's solitude. Here, the disciples hear the Father's singular voice and the Son's singular response. The disciples listen, and when Peter speaks, he speaks in truth. We often say too much and listen too little, but the spiritual life, life in Christ, as St. Paul says, is born in the valley of humility, a place where we must first learn how to receive, being schooled in the dialogue of prayer between the Father and the Son, that is free of what the crowds say. That dialogue unfolds in Jesus' solitude. Only when we are silent can he welcome us in. Away from the crowds, we learn how to cease making gods who fit our image and conform to our likeness, the gods we expect. Within this sacred space, God creates, remaking us in his image, conforming us to the likeness of the beloved Son. By the end of Luke's gospel, the addiction to the Savior we expect on our own terms seems to be the very reason the first witnesses to his resurrection cannot recognize the risen Christ. Those two downtrodden disciples on the way to Emmaus say of Jesus, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Luke chapter 24, verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Jesus did redeem Israel, but not as they expected. 
their expectations had blinded them. What blinds us to really seeing Jesus? At times, it might be overpromising, pre-packaged spirituality exercises, like overhyped Lenten programs that end up hooking us on slightly deviant images of God. The traditional practices of the church, such as the instruction to fast, pray, and give alms in Lent, are comparatively underhyped. Might these, however, actually be remedies for our hidden idolatries and unperceived blindness? We might like to try to be creative and trendy, choosing to, quote, do something rather than, quote, give up things so we can be nicer or the best versions of ourselves. But that is sometimes just another form of giving in to what the crowds say, where we worship what we think is best. Maybe fasting, prayer, and almsgiving really are forms of denial and are meant to be so. Fasting from food, praying away from the constant noise of everyday life, sharing in the poverty of the poor by giving alms. These restore us to the place of solitude in Christ. We silence our expectations and our urges so as to receive more than we can grasp. By practices such as these, the church guides us into the valley of humility, where we learn how to listen and ultimately be prepared to answer the key question in truth. But who do you say that I am? He is not our guru for enlightenment, nor the prophet of our own agendas, nor our on-call therapist. He is the Christ of God. This is our second question for reflection. It was, who do the crowd say that I am? The passage from which I read Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20. We'll do just one more of these questions of Jesus for our Lenten reflection and as an invitation to this scriptural pilgrimage. Our third question that Jesus asks is, could you not watch with me one hour? That one is appropriately Lenten, isn't it? I'll read first the passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, 36 to 41. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go yonder and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Gospel of Matthew chapter 26 verses 36 through 41. And here is our reflection. Spiritual fitness requires trained bodies. Wanting something is not enough. You have to be capable of doing what you want. It is not hard to grant Peter, James, and John the benefit of the doubt here in regard to their intentions. 
For the third time they have followed Jesus where the others have not. They have seen him raise the dead and seen him transfigured before their very eyes. They are willing to follow, but in a significant way, they are incapable. Is anything more difficult than staying awake and alert when you are dead tired? Watching a movie after a long day, or keeping military watch in the third hour, or driving through the panhandle of Texas in the middle of the night? At times such as these, who has not felt the unbearable weight of sinking eyelids and the dense fog filling a weary mind? It is not an issue of desire at these critical moments. In fact, the desire is usually pointed in quite the right direction. But like one who overexerted himself during the day or who got too little sleep in the days before, these disciples feel the toll of previous choices. They cannot counteract the inexperience that comes from infrequent attempts to hold attention in difficult circumstances. Their bodies are not fit to the task. Jesus was fit. He went off constantly to pray on his own. He prayed through the night with regularity. Here, at the end, he is not summoning up some superhuman will to press on through the night in prayer. Rather, he has practiced attuning his body to prayer, holding his mind in rapt attentiveness, channeling his energy in singular devotion. His trained body gives boundless space for this tremendous sorrow. His flesh is willing when his spirit is meek. What does he desire here in his last full night of prayer? Above all, obedience to his Father, whose consolation he seeks. But he also desires the intimacy of his most intimate companions. There is no greater intimacy than to share in the deepest sorrow of someone else. He asks them to draw near to this sorrow, to be attentive to his pain, and to stay with him. Yet their eyelids are heavy, their minds fog over, and their bodies succumb to the pressure of sleep. In order to remain fully attentive to someone who slowly pours out their soul to you in an intimate conversation, your body must lead the way. Upright posture, firmly planted feet, squared shoulders, inclined head, alert eyes. This is how the body makes space for the heart and mind to receive what is being given, to hold focus on the one speaking. Peter, James, and John slunk down, relaxed their muscles, nodded off. They show signs of being unpracticed in the art of attentiveness, and thus they are limited in their capacity for compassion. Their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. Jesus admonishes them and instructs them to pray so that they may not enter into temptation. Then he hastens back into prayer for a second time. He returns again to find them sleeping again. So he leaves them a third time to pray. Back and forth from his disciples to his father, Jesus moves. He sees his disciples' weakness and moves in sorrow back to his father. His most intimate companions remain in place as he moves forward into prayer. 
as they sleep. He makes that trek alone. The temptation of which he warns them is captured in their bodies, bodies that do not move to the Father. The temptation is to stay put, to fall victim to inertia, to sink down underneath the gravity of habitual inactivity. Jesus makes the journey they will not make, or rather, cannot make. They must become capable of it. But even as their bodies rebel in disobedience, Jesus returns to them as they sleep. He is not inattentive to them. He does not lose sight of them, and he does not neglect them. In his prayer, Jesus carries their sleeping bodies to the Father. He, who asked them to remain with him, makes room in his sorrow for their well-being, even and especially when they cannot care for themselves, let alone for him. He is attentive and therefore compassionate. Like a mountain climber who builds strength and endurance from scaling smaller peaks so as to become capable of the greater ones, these disciples, whose legs are weary and whose spirits are betrayed by their unfit bodies, must yet begin to move from sluggishness to deliberateness in their journey to the Father. None of us will be capable of an entire night of prayer all at once. It begins with an hour's watch, or maybe just a quarter of an hour. We must begin with these smaller peaks, training our bodies to hold attention in shorter periods so as to become capable of longer ones. Only then will we become ready for the final temptation where the pressure to remain in place and succumb to sleep is greatest. By moving habitually toward the Father, by making decision after decision that keeps us ready, we will walk on our way into the way that Jesus has already walked for us. We will watch and we will pray when we rise from our slumber into the life of Christ. We will remain not in ourselves, but in Him. We will walk in Him step by step. This is our third and final reflection on a question of Jesus. The question, could you not watch with me one hour? I read the passage from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 41. That brings us to the end of our time together. The reflections we heard today are taken from my book, A God Who Questions, published by our Sunday visitor who gave us permission to share them today. There is also a prayer and scripture reading guide that goes along with the book for Lent. It is found at mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. That guide is called A Scriptural Pilgrimage to Christ Through Lent. Thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com. Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. 
Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to redeem a radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU.